This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Kawahara and happy holidays from the Second Story Podcast. Today we feature a triple-headed Cerberus of holiday cheer. Maybe you're traveling by train today. Maybe you're watching flakes fall gracefully across some pastoral landscape. Maybe you're locked in the closet of your childhood bedroom. For whatever reason you're listening, we thank you and hope for your safe passage into the new year. Accompanying each of our three full-length stories, we've recorded three minis. You may have heard the phrase, we tell the first story so you can tell the second story. Well, now we've captured three off-the-cuff stories from audience members inspired by our storytellers. Our first storyteller is a Chicago performer, model agent, and ensemble member with Chicago's Spanish-speaking Aguijon Theater Company. Recorded live at City Winery on November 23rd, 2015, Second Story presents Erica Cruz Hernandez. where her parents live, to Croton-on-Hudson, New York. We've been dating for about seven months now, and in Les Lingo, it's getting real in the Whole Foods parking lot. <laughs> I even did my research to help me prepare. I went to work right away, googling everything I could find about the holiday, often staying late in my office, watching YouTube videos with different Hanukkah blessings. I discovered that pretty much everything started with Baruch Adonai. So as long as I knew the beginning, I'd be good. Right? Jess's mom drives as we have careful, safe, still getting to know each other conversations. So Erica, this is your first time in New England? I respond to Jess's mom with a simple, yes, yes it is. There are a lot of firsts for me on this trip and Jessica's hand in mine and the warmth of her body by my side comfort me because I don't know exactly what to expect. It's only been about a month since Thanksgiving when she sat her Grammy and Pops down at the kitchen table in the house that we're on our way to now and asked them, do you ever wonder why I haven't brought any boys around the family? <laughs> since I wasn't with Jess when she told the Grammy and Pops about me, I had the pleasure of later hearing all the comical details. Pops responds, I thought it was because you were busy with school. <laughs> Grammy, however, was quiet and listening intently for the bomb her oldest grandchild was about to drop. The fact that she was dating a woman, not just any woman, but a Mexican-American, race Catholic, but now maybe non-denominational Christian with a love for Judaism, Shiksa! <laughs> Jess recounted to me, oh man, air, you should have seen Pop's face. 
not natural. <laughs> and of course, Grammy is all, oh, Alan, you know, it's quite all right, darling. You know, some of the girls who I played mahjong with, they have their grandkids too, who are gay. As long as you're happy, darling. Alan, stop with the face already. <laughs> We continue the drive to Jess's aunt and uncle's house, and Jess says, I'm hungry. Food is a matter that I later learn will be a constant theme in Jess's family. While Jess's stomach growls with hunger, mine is filled with nervous butterflies. The truth is, in my mind, so much is riding on this first family visit. The fact that I am even in this car on my way to my first Hanukkah is remarkable, especially after my first date with Jess. See, while I was on a break with my ex-girlfriend, I told Jess, point blank, on our first date, well, you know, my ex and I were uh, kind of on a break, so I just want to make sure you know, you know, because we're going to check in again in like six months, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> See, at the time, I really did want things to work out with my ex, but now, all I want is for everything to work out with Jess and her family. Even though it feels so perfect to be with Jess, we couldn't be more different on paper. All I can think about is the different worlds we come from and not just on a spiritual level. I recall a conversation Jess and I had some months ago. So how did your parents meet, I ask? Oh, they met at Yale Medical. She responds very ordinarily as if to say she just picked up some bread at the grocery store. I'm so nervous that maybe the family won't think I'm good enough for her. Potential scenarios run through my head and I pray that it won't come up in conversation that I'm actually the first person in my family to graduate college. My mom and dad are divorced and I eat pork. <laughs> sometimes. As Jess's mom contemplates stopping for some food, she asks, Erica, have you ever been apart from your family for the holidays? I answer back, you know, I don't actually think I've ever been away from them for the holidays. And as we drive past the snowy New England scenery that is all so new to this Chicago girl, I feel like I am worlds away from my family. Worlds away from having to get in touch with my sister for our yearly holiday contemplation. Okay. Noche Buena on December 24th will be spent with mom and our little brother. And then Christmas Day with dad at my place. Then I feel a pang in my stomach too that isn't hunger. But the guilt of asking myself, is this where I would rather be for the holidays? We drive past a billboard and Jess's eyes light up as she exclaims, oh, Marines, Deli, oh my gosh, Mom, can we please stop and take Erica in? As we get off 84 near Hartford, Connecticut, Jess is so good about checking in with me and she whispers, are you okay, Erica? She knows how nervous I am and is making an extra effort to be nurturing. As we walk into the deli, I'm, I'm greeted with all sorts of amazing smells and I see food on the menu that I have never heard of. What are latkes? I asked Jess. <gasps> you will love them, Air. She explains that they consist mostly of potatoes. Um, 
basically my dream. <laughs> Potatoes always remind me of my childhood, of all those nights my mom had to whip up dinner quickly, would pull out a box of those instant Idaho spuds. I lived for those. Jess suggests we share something called a knish that has a filling of, you guessed it, potato. <laughs> with the warm, with the first bite of the warm doughy outside and the savory potato inside, I'm in heaven. How have I not known after all these years that Jewish food is where it is at? <laughs> and as I continue to eat the homemade deliciousness that in my imagination some booby was tirelessly crafting at the back of the restaurant, each bite gives me more courage to meet the family. <laughs> Hanukkah? <laughs> After driving a while longer, we pull up to the driveway of a lovely home on the Hudson River, and I'm terrified. I squeeze Jess's hand for reassurance as the ignition is turned off, and all I can think is, oh my gosh, is this really happening? As we unload our things from the car, I feel rocks in my stomach, and suddenly I cannot remember what the blessing is. You know, maybe it's not too late. Maybe I can just make a run for it in the woods. We'll all be fine. We can spare ourselves from this whole thing. But I keep walking with Jess. My feet keep taking me. And as we walk up to the front door, I brace myself for the same kind of cold interaction that was in that scene in my big fat Greek wedding. You know, the awkward one around the table between Tula and Ian's parents. And then afterwards, Tula's dad tells her, you gonna marry a Draitos family? <laughs> I mean, I am really preparing myself for the worst. Especially after Jess let me know how Pops felt about her coming out. We ring the doorbell and I am waiting for a cold stare up and down as Jessica's aunt opens the door. Here it comes, ready for the icy glares. But instead I get smile. I'm instantly given a huge bear hug by Jess's Aunt Franny, and before I know it, I am surrounded by about 20 people. Off to my side, I hear, I'm the grandma! An older woman comes, welcomes me, gives me a hug and a beaming smile. Pops is even there. He's such a sweet-looking man, shakes my hand, gives me a hug and welcomes me too. It's December 2014, and I am frantically searching our pantry for extra paper plates to accommodate more last-minute dinner guests for our Christmaca Eve dinner. <gasps> oh, here I found some, I exclaimed to Jess. As I hold up the plates triumphantly, I look at them and exclaim, Ooh, no, but they are birthday plates. <laughs> well, good. Balloons for Jesus' birthday, says Jess, <laughs> saving the day. We laugh as I scurry to serve the still hot jalapeno latkes we made from scratch. And as I lay the latkes on the table for my family, I remind all that although we do have applesauce, to not forget the guacamole topping, as it is just as delicious with latkes as well. 
My mother is excited and asks, Miha, are you gonna light the menorah? <laughs> That's right. Sure we can. Jess, do you wanna do the blessing? She looks at me with that same warm look of reassurance before that door opened four years ago on my first Hanukkah and says, you should do it, Air. You know the blessing better than me. So the Jess that Erica is referring to is actually a company member with Second Story. I was able to speak with her about her perspective for our first mini. It's funny because when Erica came to celebrate Hanukkah with my family for the first time, she was so nervous, like nervous out of her mind. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were going to love her and that it was just a matter of getting past that first moment where she was so terrified to meet them. She was convinced they weren't going to like her. And so I was walking this fine line as the partner between, yeah, honey, I totally understand your fears. Like, it's okay. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And like, oh, come on. They're going to love you. Obviously, the latter approach wouldn't have worked very well. So I mostly went with the former. Um, but yeah, I was just like, there's no way they're not going to love each other. Our second full-length story is by company member Julie Ganey. Preceding her story is a mini by one of our board members, Jim Lupo, who participated in the same play Julie describes in her story. Well, it was it was it was a really formative moment for me as a as a seven-year-old in first grade at St. Rosalie Catholic Grammar School in the northwest side of Chicago. Um, I was asked to play Joseph in the in the Christmas pageant and. There were two memorable things about that. First, um, my first um, junior crush on Kathleen H um, was going to be Mary. So I thought that was rather um, prophetic that, that we were destined to be together if we were going to play Joseph and Mary together in the, um, in the Christmas pageant. Um, but what I also remember about it was um, it was the beginning of my need to always be the center of attention. But also, I remember my mom making the costume for me, and um, she really didn't get a sense of the fact that I was a poor carpenter from Bethlehem um, because she could never conceive of her son as um, a poor carpenter from Bethlehem. So she made my Joseph costume that was royal purple with a gold sash, and I was the most blinged out um, natty Joseph ever in the history of St. Rosalie. Catholic Grammar School. Recorded live at Ada Street on December 14th, 2015, Second Story presents Julie Gay. The fall of my eighth grade year, all the usual things happened in Crystal City, Missouri. Back to school at Our Lady Catholic in September, trick-or-treating with my younger siblings in October, turkey and relatives on Thanksgiving. The unusual thing that happened that fall was an exchange with my father in our paneled basement. I was stretched out on the nubby indoor-outdoor carpet reading. He was next to me in the black naugahyde recliner not reading with a closed book in his lap. My mother had just called us up for dinner and my father said, you go on, hon. 
I'm just not up to it. Now, my father had skipped an occasional dinner before, and we understood without having to be told that Dad sometimes felt low and needed extra sleep and time alone in the basement until he felt better. We just needed to keep the noise down and wait it out. But we never talked about it. I got to my feet and my dad looked up at me, watery and exhausted. I just feel real down today, you know? Now, as an adult, I know exactly what he meant. Better than I'd like to admit. And I know now that he was just trying to connect with me, to close up the moat of isolation that surrounded him. But at age 13, it was inexpressibly frightening. And I just wanted to get upstairs before a chasm opened at my feet and sucked me in. I'm sorry, Dad, I said. It wasn't the first time my dad was depressed during the holiday season, but it was the first time it was named. On the Monday after Thanksgiving that year, the school principal, Sister Loretta, sidled up to me outside the girls' bathroom and said, I think we'll do a Christmas play this year. I'll make sure you get a good role. <laughs> I felt a pulse of excitement. Of course, Sister Loretta would give me preferential treatment because A, I was experienced. I had been in a summer musical at the junior college where my dad taught philosophy. And B, I wasn't just an eighth grader, I was a valued member of the parish staff. <laughs> the organist at two masses every weekend, despite the fact that I was not very good at it. <laughs> also, my mom taught third grade at the school, so we were just always around. In any case, as sister squeezed my arm and clipped away in her sturdy lace-up nun shoes, I knew immediately which role I would request. The Christmas play would be the nativity story, of course. And I would be the head angel, the one who appears to the shepherds, the best role in that story, because I've always thought the most beautiful lines in the entire Bible are assigned to her, or him. It's a gender neutral role, actually. I mean, it could be a boy angel or a girl angel, but in our production, it would be me. And I would, I would suddenly appear to the shepherds and they would be terribly frightened. And the glory of the Lord would shine around us, whatever that meant. <laughs> and I would say, no, no, don't be afraid. For I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. And I saw myself in flowing, sparkling chiffon with a ring of tinsel around my head, suspended from the ceiling of the church, while all my heavenly hosts, my backup angels, went, <laughs> And that would be that. I would be the bringer of joy for all the people, even well, especially for depressed dads. All that week, I waited for Sister Loretta to approach me to ask me what role I wanted. 
We sat right next to each other at daily mass, me slogging along on the organ, sister on her guitar. Sister Loretta had some odd facial tics. Her nose would squinch up as she talked to you. She didn't wear the full nun's habit, just a simple black veil over her hair and dowdy-looking skirts and blouses. I absolutely respected her. I know this wasn't everyone's experience, but I always had nuns around me growing up, and most of them were nice, and some of them weren't, just like everybody else, but they were role models to me. They were the first women I knew who had chosen not to get married and have a family because they had important work to do in the world. They were passionate about their careers, and I looked at them and I thought, that's cool. In the end, sister didn't consult anyone, and a cast list was simply posted in our classroom a few days later. I was the only one excited about the prospect of a Christmas play, the only one rushing from my desk to the list with any real urgency. And I saw immediately that I was not the head angel. I wasn't any angel at all. I was Mary. That afternoon after school, I waited for my mother to finish up her work in her classroom and my little brothers and sisters played on the playground. I went to my usual spot. On the pretext of practicing the organ, I headed into the church and I lay on my back on the plush carpet behind the organ staring at the ceiling, wondering how Michelle Bone had scored the best part in the only play our school would be producing that year. I mean, she didn't even seem to care. Michelle Bone had perfected that middle school ideal of not getting excited about anything. <laughs> she always looked vaguely sullen in a cute kind of way. So unlike me, I mean, who cared about everything. At 13, I was still obviously excited about completely uncool things, like science fair projects, and. Christmas caroling in old-timey costumes. Nuns. <laughs> Over the next few weeks, we rehearsed, using the altar area in the church as the stage. My best friend, Denise Kist, was cast as Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, you know, who in the Bible was thought to be barren, and then in her old age, she found herself with child at the same time Mary was pregnant with Jesus. Sister Loretta gave us a duet to sing together. It was a dirge-like version of the Magnificat with eight verses. And Sister insisted we sing each and every one of them. <laughs> sing with more joy, she would insist from behind her guitar, strumming with the same vigor with which one would start a lawnmower. <laughs> Denise and I looked at each other and tried again. God has looked with favor on me, my soul glorifies the Lord. Oh. Later, after Joseph and I traveled all the way around the church on the way to Bethlehem and the birth and the laying in the manger and all of that, in what I considered the climactic scene, 
The angels would appear to the shepherds from the choir loft behind everyone, and Michelle Bone stood on a stool higher than everyone else, reciting her lines and refusing to get too worked up about even the announcement of the Savior <laughs> and joy to all the people. At home, my mother set up her sewing machine to work on my costume. Yards and yards of light blue double-knit polyester fashioned into a voluminous robe and head drape. My father, in the recliner, roused himself from the endless pile of philosophy essays he was grading. Looking good, hon. Mom, sister wants Denise and me to have pillows under the, our robes to show we're pregnant. Isn't that awful? <laughs> my mother looked disturbed but my father chuckled. He hadn't considered himself Catholic for years. He didn't attend church with us except on special occasions. He taught a comparative religion course at college in addition to his philosophy classes, and in our house he was as likely to quote Buddha or Lao Tzu as he was Nietzsche or Schopenhauer. In fact, Schopenhauer was a particular favorite of his, the founder of pessimism, which Looking back doesn't seem very helpful for a man struggling with depression. <laughs> My dad reached behind him in the recliner and offered up a round pillow with a wry look. I stuffed it under my shirt and stuck out my tongue, making myself look as ridiculous as possible. My dad didn't laugh, but he smiled. Rehearsals plodded along and Sister Loretta must have noticed my uncharacteristic lack of enthusiasm. A few days before the performance, she pulled me backstage into the sacristy, the back room off the altar. You're mopey. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Aren't you excited about this play? <laughs> she peered at me through her large, round glasses. Sure, I lied. I just, I don't know. I. I wanted a different part, I guess. A different part? You're the Blessed Virgin. You're the lead. I know, I just... I like the angel who announces everything to the shepherds. She drew back and studied me. Well, there's nothing I can do about that now. I didn't know that. Her face softened. You'll just have to learn from the Blessed Mother. Mary said yes, and she accepted her circumstances. Maybe you can do that. <laughs> I'd like to be able to tell you that I did. <laughs> the truth is, I consider that play the first in a long line of casting director missteps I've been subject to. I continued to pout and grumble, if only to my family at home. But on the evening of the performance, as my family clattered into the third pew in the audience, I saw my father continue walking toward me. He stepped lightly and he carried a hardcover book under his arm, like he always did. I separated myself from the other be-robed actors and I met him at the organ. I just wanted to say break a leg, hon, he whispered. 
I could smell the half piece of Wrigley Spearmint Gummy Chewed. Make the most of it. As Buddha would say, concentrate the mind on the present moment. He made his way back to my family. I adjusted my pregnancy pillow above my rope belt and the play started. Denise kissed and I sang our duet and Jesus was born as a Cabbage Patch doll and placed in the manger. <laughs> Michelle Bone looked beautiful under her tinsel halo and as she delivered her lines perfectly and impassively, maybe I did have a moment of recognizing that it didn't matter who said what, that it was the story that was important. And maybe my dad understood that so well because he was sad, because he'd read everything and he recognized the same story over and over again. That whether you hear it from Michelle Bone or Jesus or Muhammad or Confucius or Oprah or the Dalai Lama or your rabbi or your yoga teacher, there exists this possibility of great joy for all the people. Our final mini story is by one of our gracious volunteers, Haiti Souffrant, who helped us host at Pub 626. I remember the moment I discovered Santa wasn't real. And it was the same year that I discovered the tooth fairy wasn't real. So, you know, being heartbroken, I had my first, like, big girl tooth come in. I was like, oh, my God, I'm really excited. That was when I found my teeth in, like, this little cup in our bathroom, which was really weird because you never expect, like, to find your teeth, but mm -hmm. whatever. So I, you know, growing up, I was the youngest of two kids, and my sister was always the kid that asked for whatever she wanted and kind of got it. I was a kid that was, you know, you know, 10, in, like 40 years old in a 10-year-old body. And, you know, I never really asked for presents. I was just kind of like, oh, I was gifted with things, and everybody kind of assumed I would like it, and that was fine. But I remember... You know, this one year, I just really wanted this, like, Christmas, like, you know, little kids' kitchen set. And I was like, oh, man. And if it was, like, one of those easy-bake ovens, I was going to be excited about it. So, you know, my dad always had this ritual of, like, wrapping all the presents in the basement. But I didn't understand why. And he was like, oh, no, you know, Santa's going to, Santa's going to, you know, give you your gifts. And... I was a curious kid. I would hide on my table and read all these books about, you know, Egyptology and the universe. And so I was like, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna discover the secret of Santa. I was like, Santa's gonna be real. And I was like, okay. So you know, I followed my dad down into the basement. I saw him wrapping gifts, and I was like, maybe my dad's in cahoots with Santa. Like he probably got the memo. That makes sense. And I was like, oh, but I didn't find the gifts that I thought I would want. But, you know, I still rolled with it anyway, because, you know, you're 10. You're like, I don't really have any agency in this matter. But I remember sitting behind our, one of our couches in our living room, my sister. My sister's three years older than me and loved ruining everything. Um, and we were looking out at the window, and we were looking at the sky. And this was the t age where I was obsessed with astronomy. So we were sitting, and I was pointing to her all the stars. And she, it, like, we were in the dark, and she just 
turned to her left and said, Haiti, you know Santa doesn't exist, right? (laughs) And I remember looking up at my big sister, who was 13, on the cusp of like that prepubescent angst where she just like was angry at everything and wanted to ruin the world for everybody involved. And just in the dark, I'm looking at the universe and I'm looking at the stars and I'm saying, the world is full of magic. And she just says, Santa doesn't exist. And you know how I know? Because I saw dad wrapping your presents. And I was like, what? That can't be true. Like, you're just being mean. Like, I don't understand. But sure enough, that was when I walked down the stairs into my basement and I saw my dad actually wrapping the presents. And it was different this time around because I realized that, you know, the rose-colored glasses came off. So Mm -hmm. I saw my dad, like, pull out the paper and make the decision and write Santa on the gift instead of him. And I just remember going back upstairs, sitting back behind the couch, and my sister had left and gone to watch some TV or something like that. And I just remember looking out of the window and crying because there was this moment I was like wow the magic in the world left yeah like the magic died and there was no way to see Christmas the way I had for the first you know cognitively six years of my life Mm because who remembers Christmas at four nobody is the is the magic back for you now in any way you know it's weird because I think the magic changes like I always get kind of you know, Scrooge McDuck on everybody. I'm like, I hate the holidays, whatever. But there's always a moment between like 12 a.m. on Christmas morning and two in the morning where I remember, you know, it's beautiful as it is. Like there's no more Christmas decorations. My parents are getting older in their age. And I'm just like, I appreciate Christmas as it is now and not what I thought it was. So there's always magic in like these little moments. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Man, I almost forgot that my sister ruined Santa for me. For more on Christmas's conspiratorial magics, stay tuned for our final storyteller, a veteran performer and collaborator with Second Story. Currently teaching at Columbia College Chicago, he's an actor and comedy professional and appears in our compendium of short stories, briefly knocked unconscious by a low flying duck. Second Story presents Rick Walker. Christmas has become complicated. Can I get an amen? (laughs) It's fraught with expectations, assumptions, stockings full of sticky emotions. Christmas for me used to be very simple. Did I get more stuff that I wanted than stuff that I needed? A simple equation. I remember when I came up with that elegant theorem, I was 10 years old. That year, my greatest wish, dream, hope was for a racetrack set. Not just any racetrack set, a TCR. The cars were the same size as Matchbox cars, but twice as cool. TCR stood for Total Control Racing. Total Control Racing! Not only could you control the speed of your car, but with a flip of a switch on the back of the remote, you could switch lanes, a major leap forward in slot car technology. 
In the commercials, one kid passed his buddy's car, causing his buddy to slap his own forehead in frustrated humiliation. <laughs> I had already cast myself as the victor and my best friend, Greggy Eggleston, as the face-slapping second-placer. <laughs> Picture the scene. Ripped wrapping paper strewn around the living room like a cyclone of Christmas cheer had just passed through. My mother in her pink house coat and pink slippers had pulled a dining room chair to the edge of the living room, giving our vantage point to watch her children greedily open their many gifts. Her smile renewed as each present was played with or tried on. My oldest brother, Jamie, wiring his circuit board kit by the front windows. He, could, he was able to make things as simple as a light switch or a radio. That was a Jamie gift. He loved it. The next oldest, Kenny, had attached a small weight to the end of his new fishing line and sat at the far end of the living room casting as close to me as he could without getting in trouble, but close enough to annoy me. A perfect Kenny gift. My baby sister, Shelly, who was two, played with empty boxes, stacking them and knocking them over and looking around the room to see if anyone else thought it was as hilarious as she did. And then she'd start again. My dad sat on the floor behind Shelly, leaning back against the wingback chair, drinking eggnog, tired but happy, a new digital clock radio across his belly. But as I surveyed the yuletide wreckage of red and green, no TCR, no Ricky gift, no Christmas miracle. So on the floor near the couch, I had my $6 million man, Steve Austin action figure, not a doll, beating up my old G.I. Joe with Kung Fu grip. Mom asked, Ricky, are you having a good Christmas? Yeah, great, I lied. <laughs> Did you get everything you wanted? Even at 10 years old, I knew only an ingrate would give the answer that flashed through my mind, which was, no, no, I didn't. First off, don't even bother wrapping socks and underwear. Those aren't real Christmas gifts, and I'm not even convinced they're necessary. In spite of the fact that I had gotten like 15 new toys, the one thing I really wanted, I didn't get. Total control racing. Mom asked again, did you get everything you wanted? And I thought about it. Even though I hadn't gotten the one thing I wished for, I got a ton of great stuff. A new magic eight ball so I could tell the future, a Hugo Mars Jr. disguise kit uh, so I could solve crimes in a mustache. <laughs> Lots of cool stuff. I don't always need everything I want. So I answered without complaint. Yeah, Santa did a good job. My little sister yells out, Santa, while knocking over a stack of boxes. Yeah, I knew the truth about Santa, but I had joined the conspiracy. <laughs> oh, good. You got everything you wanted. But, uh, huh. Mom pretended to look around the room. I don't see, um, huh. I was confused. Why was Mom acting? 
acting. <laughs> well, 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 well. Um, did you look behind the couch? The twinkle in her eyes, shinier than the star on the tree. Could it be? I moved cautiously onto the couch, afraid to hope too much. Wedged behind it in the wall, a colorfully wrapped package. I scanned my family's faces for answers. They looked back expectantly, well, except Shelly. She was preoccupied shoving as much paper as she could into a small box. I pulled the couch away from the wall and I yanked my bounty from its hiding place. I clawed at one corner and I ripped diagonally, exposing race cars going at an obviously high rate of speed. <laughs> I had gotten the greatest gift a kid could ask for, and after opening so many gifts, I had already accepted that I hadn't gotten it. And with that diagonal tear, my world shifted. I had never experienced such sudden and surprising joy. I burst into tears. And I hugged that box. The tears continued as I removed the remaining paper. My brothers, who usually loved finding any reason in the world to mock me, joined in with appreciative laughter. This shared, unabashed joy is a Christmas miracle and should be treasured. I had learned about tears of joy several Christmases before. I was only six, but I vividly remember watching my father open one of his presents from my mother. And when he recognized what it was, he burst into tears. And then he ran upstairs as embarrassed as he was overwhelmed. At six, I had never seen my father cry before. And I was confused. Big boys don't cry. The present was a beer-making kit. <laughs> In my child's mind, I had created a narrative to explain this odd event. I figured he really wanted a beer-making kit and that my mother had told him no. <laughs> she did that to me all the time. Like if we were at the boring old grocery store and I asked for a nickel for a gumball, she might give me one, but a more likely scenario was, well, I would have given you a nickel if you had just put water into Pippi's bowl. What? She's Kenny's dog? That doesn't even make sense. Oh, so now you're acting ugly. You definitely won't get a nickel now. Entrapment. <laughs> Mom logic, my brothers and I called it. And when it came to that beer-making kit, I, I imagine that there had been some reversal of mom logic. I figured that dad was so surprised that she had changed her mind that he was overcome. Why else would somebody care so much about a plastic barrel and a few ingredients? Now this is the narrative that I've carried with me for over 40 years. But I'm not six anymore, and that story doesn't hold water, so I called my dad to ask him his side. And what he, what he told me was much more beautiful than I had imagined. And even now, he held back the tears. It's not the gift, he said, it's the giver. Nobody has ever loved Christmas more than Sylvia. Now, you might not remember this, but me and my buddies, we used to make wine in our basements, and I hadn't asked for that beer kit, 
or hinted about it or even knew that I wanted it. It was just perfect. I was going to be the first one of my buddies to make beer. Such a thoughtful gift. And I knew I couldn't give her the perfect gift. And I guess that's just how my appreciation came out, through tears. That was why I had cried when I got my TCR set. It's what I had learned. Christmas miracles are those moments of surprise and joy. I know that that reaction was the gift my mother was looking for for herself. Mom's favorite gift, Christmas miracles. Mom observed, so you were happy even before you got your cars. Yeah, good, because Christmas isn't about all that stuff. I understand that now, but at 10, I thought, Mom logic, I'm going to set up my racetrack. <laughs> Sadly, time moves on from those joyous moments and the rest of life happens. Who would have guessed that that TCR Christmas would be our last Christmas together? In the years since I was 10, my parents divorced. Dad didn't want to miss out on the sexual revolution of the days of disco. The next dozen years, mom's bitterness spilled over into every aspect of her life. At 27, my brother Kenny died, and other earth-shattering events found us drifting apart. There were good times, too, additions to the family. I got married. My baby sister grew up to have three babies of her own. Every Christmas, though, was so different with different lessons. But Walker family Christmas was hit or miss. In the late 90s, I became the organizer of major holidays, the one willing to make decisions for the rest of the group. If I wanted to host Thanksgiving, everyone traveled to Chicago. If I didn't feel like doing the bulk of the cleanup, everyone went to my sister's house for Christmas in Michigan. If I felt like really enjoying myself, I'd go to Europe and spend the holidays with my in-laws. In September of 2008, my stepmother unexpectedly died. Now, obviously, the the holidays would be rough on my dad and my half-sister, Sandia, so I made the plan to have them spend Christmas with me. And when I told mom that dad and Sandia would be coming to Chicago, she suggested that we all go to Columbus for Christmas weekend. Now, I was surprised. Mom had loathed dad at the end of the 70s had despised him in the 80s, tolerated him in the 90s, but this was a new millennium. But I was surprised that she would so easily welcome her ex-husband and his child at her Christmas. Christmas morning was reminiscent of my childhood with everyone sitting around my mother's living room opening presents, colorful paper filling the gaps between us. I sat at the at the end of the couch closest to the fireplace that I intermittently tended with an open box of socks and underwear on my lap, thinking, nice, boxer briefs and argyles, thoughtful gift. <laughs> Clockwise around the room, Sandia between my mother and I on the couch, 
Jamie in the coral-colored armchair reading liner notes to his new DVD box set of Star Trek, the original series. Dad on the floral wingback near the front door with a new weather station clock. Shelly's kids, Michaela, 13, wearing literally all of the clothes she got for Christmas, all at once to hilarious effect. James and Kenny, 15 and 16, each with a new manual for a PlayStation game, telling each other awesome new features that they'll soon be using, and Shelly on the floor in my mom's pink robe, gathering paper and jamming it into a garbage bag. Later, as we were nearing the end of dinner, I looked around the table, you know, all the good food, wine, eggnog, all of us, including my mother and father, all around the same table, feasting together. None of the teenagers were bickering, and even my brother Kenny was present, spoken of beautifully by my father during grace. We were together as a family for the first time in more than 30 years. Peals of laughter, the sounds of silverware on fine china, my mother leaned in toward me and said softly, this is nice, having everybody here. It is, I agreed. When you're in a moment, you cannot know its eventual significance. Over the next several months, my mother repeatedly mentioned what a nice Christmas we had had. There was no way of knowing it would be her last. She died suddenly a couple of weeks before her birthday in October. The confluence of events that brought us all together as a family in December of 2008 was our Christmas miracle. Because we had a chance to give mom her greatest Christmas wish, dream, hope, family. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. If you'd like to support Second Story, please visit our website at secondstory.com. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in the new year.